En boca cerrada no entran las moscas, which means an open mouth catches no flies, which means sh shut up. We're going to try a little something different today. This is a really exciting moment in culture for space nerds, which I count myself as, and, and I believe Nicole does as well. Yes, sir. There's a lot of shows about space and space exploration going on right now, and there are in fact so many shows that I don't even feel obliged to watch them all, which tells you a lot about just just what a what a wealth we have to work with. <laughs> but the thing about science fiction is that it has so many interesting lessons for us, and we wanted to talk about a couple of shows that are about the things that we care about, that are about culture and politics and how work works. And we wanted to talk about these shows because they have the virtue of no one having signed an NDA. So we can we can discuss them freely. Nobody gets in trouble. Nobody gets a, a nasty gram from a lawyer. Everything's fine. So we wanted to talk to you a little bit today about Picard, which is streaming right now on CBS All Access. And uh, in addition to that, we wanted to talk to you a little bit about For All Mankind, which is a very interesting show that has launched on uh, Apple's Apple TV Plus streaming service. The showrunner for For All Mankind will be known to those who are fans of Battlestar Galactica and Star Trek because that's Ronald D. Moore, and he is back in space telling space stories. And the fascinating conceit of For All Mankind is it asks the question, what would have happened if the United States was not first to the moon? So we want to talk about both of those shows with you today. We are going to be going heavy on the spoilers. So if you really were planning to watch these shows, uh, we were hoping that you would go and watch them first and then come back and listen to us. And if you were not wanting to listen to either of these shows, I think that we might be able to convince you to do so by the time we're done here. Yeah, we're going to be talking about the first episode in each of those seasons, so you don't need to go binge everything. Well, the season of Picard isn't available yet. They're releasing them uh, weekly, I believe. Uh, For All Mankind, 10 episodes are available now, but we're just going to be talking about episode one of each of these. So it's not too daunting of a task if you'd like to pause here and go watch Spoiler alerts abound, folks. All right. So Picard's back, and this is kind Woo! of a big deal because Picard is is the Star Trek figure, I think, that has had the most lasting power. Well, I, I agree. And he's also been a model for many people about what leadership could look like if you both have to toe a hard line but then also have a heart and do you know, deal with interpersonal kinds of, of challenges. He is fundamentally teachable. It's so interesting to watch a leader who has so much confidence also learn as he goes and incorporate lessons into sort of his next adventure. Because Picard fucks up sometimes. Well, he, he definitely does. And he's got a culture on his, on his ship that allows for some people to tell him that. I mean, there are some very close confidants to him who will 
tell him in ways that he can actually um, metabolize. Why, why do you think they started this show with Picard and with Data? Well, a couple of reasons. One, I think, I think for fans of the original uh, Next Generation, can we call Next Generation the original? It, it, that... It's become, yeah. <laughs> it's become the original. I think for fans, we understand how deep their relationship became and that they transcended on some level, you know, Picard as a captain and Data as, a, as an android, as something that isn't quite human that they transcended their their lot in life to become truly deep friends and have a deep relationship with each other where they were very very fond of each other and it was a it it was at times in the next generation a really sweet relationship um that that made them both better as a result and it never felt like there was a a distinct hierarchy between the two of them, even though Picard was the boss, um, that they were able to develop a really um, deep and meaningful friendship. And so we start with them playing. They're playing poker. Oh, they're playing poker. That's right. They're playing poker in this first in this first scene. And so there's this there's this serenity of it where you know that Picard and Data have these deep philosophical conversations and also a real love and respect for each other. And so you're caught you know, in that wistful, I was at least caught in that wistful place of, oh, it's just so good to see them together again. What I found really striking actually with that scene is that there was an open affection and vulnerability that mm -hmm. Picard was showing Data. And this is a dream sequence. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we're seeing a dream sequence between two people who have worked together for a very long time and Data has died. Right? Like, Data mm -hmm. was destroyed. He sacrificed himself to save Picard, to save a mission. Mm -hmm. And and so Picard is engaging with him in a way that shows so much more warmth and so much more affection than I think their working relationship had really permitted mm -hmm. in the past and, and in reality. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something there about the walls of propriety that we allow that maybe are, are required in certain working relationships that over time start to dissolve. Right, right. And, you know, I have, you and I are collaborators and sometimes I'm your boss technically and, and sometimes, you know, the hierarchy demands things of us. But fundamentally, um, you know, we have a relationship that transcends that kind of hierarchy. I have several other collaborators with whom I have that relationship. And it is an interesting thing to transcend the manager direct report relationship and start to realize that at the end of the day, you know, we are, we are collaborators, companions, uh, friends, and it is, it takes a long time. And I think one of the lessons of watching Picard kind of loosen up over time is that I think he got comfortable enough in his station that there, there wasn't much left to prove. Right. Everyone knew that they could trust his leadership, even if they disagreed with him, they could trust him um, and they could tell him that they disagreed with him. And, you know, I always think about I, I, I think one of the things that I'm, I, I would love for you to say more about is I felt like in the, the original, we got to see the tenderness between the two of them. I, I don't I don't know that that this wistful dream sequence that he has is. It, that it is that it is a, a huge step away from where we sort of left them 
um, 20 years ago. But I would love to hear you say more about that. Well, I, I just went back and I watched The Measure of a Man, mm-hmm. which is the Next Generation episode where you have Data basically being seized by Starfleet as property mm-hmm. and Captain Picard having to defend him and protect his rights. Mm-hmm. And the scene where Data has to talk about his position with this, there is a distance. There is this really specific professional distance that Picard cares about him, but he is not being openly affectionate because there is Mm-hmm. this obligation to also be the captain, to also be serving Starfleet's interests if they are appropriate. And I think that that really falls away when we watch this dream sequence. Picard can just be this person who loves mm-hmm. Data. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have the tension and he doesn't have the responsibility of being Data's captain at mm-hmm. that moment. Mm-hmm. He just can appreciate him in, in, you know, in the way that you appreciate someone who's been gone 20 years. You know, it, it also made me think about the actors, about Brent Spiner and, and about Patrick Stewart and how, like, you can feel in some ways or as you're watching it, or maybe I'm projecting, but how excited and happy they were to be sitting across from each other again. And they're, they're delighted. They're delighted. And as, as, as humans and try as they might <laughs> to not age Brent Spiner, you know, as Data... It, it, it comes through and I wasn't I wasn't mad at it because I was like, look, these are two actors who worked so closely together for years and and they're beloved by so many. It was really nice to just see them back together. So the opening sequence gets you in this wistful reverie of, oh, it's so nice to see Picard and Data again. This is amazing. I'm looking at Picard and Data again. And then they you shatter know, you. They shatter you because there's a massive explosion and you realize that Picard is reliving trauma. And there's and there's no data. There's no data to go and play poker with. Like this is yeah. somebody he can only see in in his memories and, and in his imagination. And what I think was really interesting about, you know, reading some of the trade magazines talking about the production of the show and, and Patrick Stewart returning to this role. Patrick did not want to do this. Like, he he was not interested in coming back to Star Trek at all. He thought that they had really said everything they had to say. And they persuaded him in part because they were very into his feedback that if we're going to tell this story, we need to really tell it now. We need to tell it in a way that's relevant to today. I don't want to go back in time to the 90s and do Star Trek. I want to do a Star Trek for the 21st century. Mm -hmm. And so we get into seeing... A very different federation when Picard is speaking with a journalist. It's this really like Fox News feeling situation Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because Picard has to argue that life is life irrespective of if it is human, if it is Romulan. The Fox News vibe coming off of this journalist is, is one that's very nationalist and very human centric this is not somebody who is interested in what we characteristically think of as the federation's diversity mandate right Mm -hmm. and that's so relevant to all of the conversations that we've got going on in in politics right now uh internationally even but especially in the uk where patrick is from especially in the united states where a lot of the audience is 
You know, I read that a little bit differently when he's being interviewed by that reporter because instead of it being sort of a, a nationalistic or, or, or jingoistic kind of like, you know, uh, um, challenge of his decision, part of me heard her saying from a utilitarian standpoint, was it right for you to order and demand the evacuation of Romulans? We lost all of these people, all of our people. We spent all of these resources and it was all for naught. And, and you know, I thought that even though they made her kind of, um, you know, she went at him hard, it's clear that he hasn't done an interview in however long, they make that very clear, and that he doesn't want to be asked questions about this, but he's asked anyway. and. You know, one of the, I, I immediately went back to Gil Scott Heron's song, Whitey on the Moon. And when I think about the commentary of that song, and, and it, we can talk about it again in, in when we talk about For All Mankind, the question Gil Scott Heron is raising is, we've got suffering right here on this planet. Why, why have we spent the resources and time going out there when, you know, a rat, a rat bit my sister Nell is, is are, the, are the words of the song and but Whitey's on the moon and I thought what I heard her saying um was a legitimate criticism of why did you think it was going to be worth risking all of those resources and all of those lives in order to save people or save a a a, a species, people, the Romulans, who have been horrible to us. And I don't think it's an unreasonable question. Now, I am always like team, team Starfleet. I'm always about the Enterprise. I'm always about the Federation. But when she asked it, and I thought it was a very clever uh, point. The, the, the first episode was directed by a black woman um, whose name I'll look up in a, in a second. And she has cast this journalist as a, as a black woman asking these questions. And so for me, the identity of the person asking the questions, even though it's far in the future, felt like a situation now, which was this is not an unfair interrogation of Picard. I might not have liked that, you know, she was rude to a to a retired officer who was very decorated. But if I think about Picard as a retired military officer in the 21st century, I would say all questions are, are above board about how we've spent resources and specifically lives on these missions that were fundamentally, you know, um, that were fundamentally flawed. I, I, I thought it was a little more, I don't know, I thought about that scene a lot, I guess, is, is what I'm saying and that I'm not sure I read it the same way you did. Well, I, I think Starfleet's mission is a fundamentally humanitarian one. Yeah, it and... absolutely is. The Romulan people are not responsible for the decisions of their government, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We should mm -hmm. not condemn to death mm -hmm. a civilian population who, I mean, th this is a, a society that lives under a secret police. Mm -hmm. The Tal Shiar mm -hmm. loom large in Romulan imagination as people who will disappear you if you express any sort of dissent. And so... I think that it is entirely consistent with Starfleet's character that regardless of the political decisions made by the elites of the Romulans, you can't just let all of these people die. Mm -hmm. I, I think that the role of the Federation, as we have understood it for you know the last 200 years that 
it exists within this canon is the sanctity of life. The sanctity of all life, regardless of what it looks like, regardless of what languages it speaks, the sanctity of all life is paramount. And so if you've got millions of people who are going to die if they're not evacuated from Romulus mm -hmm. and you have the resources, which the Federation absolutely has, right? Mm -hmm. Like the Federation is an empire ultimately, and it's a fairly wealthy one. And it had certainly been challenged at this point. But at the end of the day, there was a lot of money. And there was resources, and there was know-how, and there was technology, and there were lives at stake. Mm -hmm. And you can't have, you, you can't say that a Federation citizen is more valuable than a Romulan citizen and be sticking to the values of the Federation. It's, it's just that simple. Well, I think that the interesting thing about this, and of course I agree with you on that point, but where I think her question is fair is we need to continue to assert that and i think because we've all or i don't i don't know again i'm i am projecting my own values onto my love of of, of this genre and of this universe and of gene roddenberry that i think a lot of us watch star trek thinking this could this is the aspiration of our country of the united states like if we want to behave like starfleet if we want to behave like the federation if we want to acknowledge that all life is worth, you know, the same and all life is worth uh, fighting for, pursuing, um, saving, then it stands to reason that we would have to assert that over time again and again and again. And when I think about things like uh, we just passed the, the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. And I watched the video. I don't know how many. I don't know if you were able to watch the video of survivors going back and and putting you know flowers on the on the markers and really um I, wouldn't, I won't say touring the camp again but but being present at the camp again you know asserting the decision that life is worth something and that we i have a responsibility to preserve that to liberate it to rescue to evacuate it's a we've lost our way on this point in the 21st century and so if we're asked the question, why did you risk so many Federation lives? And we say the answer is because a Federation life is not worth more than a Romulan life. And our job is to actually, you know, preserve the safety of as many people as possible and, and get them safe. Well, now we're in a question about what is going on with our own immigration, uh, our own immigration policies the fact that we are, you know, turning away potential asylees and refugees at our own borders now is um, administering wealth tests to them. administering wealth tests to immigrants, which I just thought what we have so lost our way on what the aspiration of this country was and it still is for a lot of us that um, it was a really it was a really helpful um was a really helpful metaphor for a question that we currently are wrestling with today. This is what I think is actually so exciting about this show being back. This is an election year, obviously. Like, no one's going to let you forget that this is a fucking election year. <laughs> oh my God, it's an election year? Right. And Who's we, running? Just kidding. We, <laughs> we have the most popular socialist figure in the history of pop culture, 
You see, money doesn't exist in the 24th century. No money? You mean you don't get paid? The acquisition of wealth is no longer the driving force in our lives. We work to better ourselves and the rest of humanity. <laughs> Back in an election year to talk about multiculturalism and the role of government and ethics. And he's got 10 hours to propagandize an electorate during an election year on these topics. And I just, I think that that is extraordinary timing. I doubt it's an accident, but I think that there's a real opportunity, and this is part of why we're, we're spending some time to talk about this uh, mm -hmm. with you today. There's a real opportunity when something like this is taking up so much space in pop culture, in the media, in the popular imagination, there's a real opportunity to move the needle on people's apathy. And, and I'm very hopeful that that's what we're going to see with mm -hmm. Picard. Yeah, I would love to see a recalibration of what we consider leadership to look like. I think we've yeah. really lost our way on that collectively. I mean, I think a lot of us are holding on to what we think a good leader does and, and how they behave and the decisions they make and the hard trade-offs. And for me, there's there's not really a better pop culture figure than Picard. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing who, you know, if they bring on uh, a, ment a mentee for him, what what does his succession plan look like in terms of who are who's going to be the next class of strong leaders that can hold that line on what you said, which was like sanctity of life, making sure people have, uh, you know, at least the bare minimum to for you know survival without having to fight every every step of the way and that we wouldn't um, value life x over life y for any real reason that 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 makes sense um i don't know i i'm really i'm really looking forward to seeing who who his who his protege if they if they bring introduce a protege i really am looking forward to seeing how that happens because i also think there's an intergenerational dynamic here that i think you know, in showing my kids, my own kids who are 17 and 20, um, the next generation, they absolutely love it for the metaphor that it is. And some of the values of it don't actually hold up <laughs> 20 years later. Some of the interactions don't actually hold up uh, 20 years later. And they're very oh, yeah. easy to spot now. And so as Picard is, is, is an aging and elderly man, where is a younger generation going to push on some of his assumptions? Well, I, my, my favorite criticism of Star Trek is like, really, we're in space and there's still marriage and straight people. Like, well, yeah. <laughs> and the white guy's still in charge. So, right. you know. <laughs> All right. So let's let's talk about For All Mankind. Okay. Um, change gears a little bit. This is a very different vibe from Star mm -hmm. Trek. Mm -hmm. For one thing, it's a period thing. Mm -hmm. My pitch for this is that, you know, imagine Apollo 13 is 10 hours long. And quite a bit more feminist, and you will arrive at for all mankind, and and I think that it's it's actually very compelling. There's a lot of fresh suspense from experiences that we know are very difficult. Like like we're not we don't belong in space. We're not supposed to be in space. And so, mm -hmm. if we successfully get into space, it's a miracle in the first place. It's even more of a miracle if we get back. And so, that is very fertile soil for telling a story. What I think is really important going into this show is that you're going to be watching this period piece. It's going to be set starting in like 1969. Mm -hmm. 
June of 1969, which is really That's important. Right. I, I want you to understand that whatever else is going on, this is not a hagiography of America. <laughs> this is not an uncritical exploration of what that time is. I don't want to give more spoilers than what you're going to get into in the first episode. All I can tell you is that understand that this show wants to push America. It wants mm -hmm. to push on America's view on itself, and it wants to challenge our assumptions about the good old days, whatever someone's thoughts on that might mm -hmm. be. Yeah, and, and it, it, the dissonance that, that I experienced, the cognitive dissonance I experienced watching it, everything seems so familiar. So I was born in 1972. Uh, humans went to the moon and it landed on the moon in 1969. And, the, you know, it is so ingrained in, in you that this is a fundamental part of our fabric that the United States was first to land on the moon. And you'll you'll know from the from really the outset that this isn't what's going to happen. It, as, as familiar as everything is, it says you know it starts with June something 1969, and everybody's glued to their TV. Now, if you know your your dates well, you know that the United States did not land on the moon until July of 1969. So in June, everybody's watching their TV, uh, and it and it takes place in the United States. And they're, they've all got that familiar look on their face like we've seen in films of like, what was it like when people were watching a, a man land on the moon, right? But we're spectators, not participants. And so everybody's got this amazing look of wonder as they're all crowded around televisions in bars and in their homes and people saying, come here, you got to see this, waking their kids up, you got to see this. And so on the one hand, the fact that, that our species is landing on the moon, the the wonder of it is still there, but because this story revolves around astronauts themselves, American astronauts and those who love them, uh, what you see is the deep, deep disappointment and failure that is felt. Um, fear. Fear, failure, just, uh, I mean, the devastation that Russians, that the Soviet Union beat the United States to the moon and we how lost. we lost something that we were not planning on, that we really thought was impossible to lose. And then the cascading effect of blame and of, you know, of what the president has to say. Nixon is, Nixon's responses to this and, and the astronauts, the American astronauts themselves just feeling so dejected. And then realizing that as a workplace drama, in addition to being sort of this sort of uh, you know, alternate timeline, you start to realize that other things, if we had failed, other conversations could have been, would have been sparked by the fact that we were not as great as we, the United States was not as great as we thought we were, and that we were much more neck and neck technologically with the Soviet Union than ultimately we, we, found, we found out, you know, 20 years later. But in this scenario, the kinds of conversations that failure opens up in the workplace is fascinating. The first words spoken on the moon celebrate the Marxist-Leninist way of life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this, I think, really speaks to the feeling of failure that you're describing because we've got a lot of people reporting to work the next day knowing that the banner of an entire way of life 
has been fumbled by the United States. And Mm -hmm. it's funny for me because I was watching a lot of that. And when you go and you work in a tech startup, there's a there's a lot of delusions of grandeur mm-hmm. where startups really like to feel like they can play on the level of of nation states. You know, you, mm-hmm. you, you got startups that'll put like, you know, recreations of the White House and, and that kind of stuff in <laughs> Hypothetically their speaking. offices. Right. And so you've got I've been in the room where people feel like it is life and death, the sense of failure that is surrounding them. Mm-hmm. And seeing that depicted on TV at this scale was really compelling for me. It, it really was because we take the phrase moonshots for granted a lot and we use them in work, we overuse them at work. It's like, what's our moonshot? Because for us, that, that means something that seems so impossible, but we do it and we win, right? Like really think about your moonshot. And so when I say things like eradicate racism and poverty, people go, well, that's too far. <laughs> And, and so go, was the moon. Right. So was, I was, and that's that. So was the moon. And and the idea that it has to be way far out there, but also winnable. Because if you lose, well, then your startup's fucked. Excuse my right. language. Uh, then everything is, we can't get funding. We can't get. And so we put, you're right, startups put themselves on this level playing field with like putting a human in space. And you got to go, okay, okay, everybody calm down. We're, we're, we're really not, we're really not at that level, nor are we doing you know, life-saving surgery. Let's just tone it down. But the the but, mythology. But I, I've been there. Well, the I, myth, I, but the but the mythology exactly. of Americans being able to do whatever the hell we set our mind to is entrenched. And now we're watching in this in this dystopian history. We're watching this alternate history. That narrative doesn't stick. That's not a narrative that we get. Right. We lost. So then what? And so that that whole reality just reverberates through everything the United States does, right? Mm-hmm. This as a hinge point for history, I think, is a really rich jumping off point for asking how we would have done things differently, how we would have seen things differently. Mm-hmm. I also think part of what is really valuable about watching For All Mankind as it depicts the workplace is that I think it's really sensitive to how identity is a huge part of your experience of work. When we Mm -hmm. jump into the show, the very first episode is largely about white guys. It's about test pilots who came through the Air Force who became NASA astronauts. And so we see what the experience of work is when you have that level of centering and privilege Everybody gets this dressing down because everybody failed, but everyone is also given a pat on the back to say, hey, go get drunk, get this out of your system, and let's come back on Monday and do this right. And you see these guys, uh, and they're all guys, they all run to their cars, which are all Corvettes, and they're all parked at the very front of the parking lot of the facility because astronauts are gods among men during this era of life, right? And I think it's a really interesting experience because we will then, as time goes on, we'll we'll juxtapose how it is to be a white male astronaut versus how it is to be a different kind of astronaut. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think in the first episode, you'll start to see hints that there are other stakeholders in this. 
there's a family crossing the Mexican border that revolves around a, a young, maybe 12 or 13 year old girl. Um, there are the wives of the astronauts. There is one woman who is working in, in Command Central. Uh, and you can start to see the incongruency of their reactions to what's going on juxtaposed against that of the, the white male astronaut whose story we always, we always hear. Um, you know, it was, it, was, it was amazing. Of course it was. It was, we are heroes. We are. And We've then, got the right stuff. <laughs> to coin a phrase, they got the right stuff. And then, you know, what I was talking about earlier with, I think about Gil Scott Heron's song, Whitey on the Moon, a lot. Because I think as much as the American mythology has revolved around the, the courage of the astronauts and the genius of the people who put them there, well, you got to know there was another level of criticism and question going on. We just don't ever get to center those voices. So Gil Scott Heron's Whitey on the Moon was for me as, an, as a young adult the first time I heard, right, pre-internet, I'm growing up, I heard a consumable criticism that lasted uh, of like, what are we doing with our resources? So that's number one. And then number two is, you know, what would, uh, when Hidden Figures came out, you know, Hidden Figures as a film, which I cried, I cried through the entire thing, you can, you can ask my kids, um, was another way of saying, look, there's, there are, there are just as many stories of this as you want to find. We just have never centered the voices of people who were, um, you know, peripheral to making this happen, but were no less integral to, to the miracle of putting somebody on the moon. And they so, were just shoved off screen at every shoved stage. Shoved off screen, didn't exist, you know, black women, mathematicians, who would have, you know, that's a, that's a recent conversation in, in the popular popular sphere now you know if you're interested in things like social history which is what i am then you have gone and sought these these uh perspectives right to say well what was it like one of my favorite books is called um it's it's a it's a diary of a midwife during the the revolutionary war in the united states and this woman is chronicling what it's like to go care for pregnant women and deliver babies and the backseat to which the revolutionary war takes to her day-to-day -day life of delivering babies and making sure moms are safe and doing those things is a fascinating way of looking at something that looms so large in our minds. But then you go, right, other life was happening at the same time. Babies didn't stop being born because there was a war. Right. People didn't stop getting sick. They didn't stop you know, gossiping. They didn't stop needing a midwife to rush to their house in the middle of the night to help deliver a baby. And so I love social history so much for that reason. And this is this is gearing up to be a great view at an alternate social history. Absolutely. I, I think that it is showing up at a very powerful time to challenge us to imagine our past differently, but also to, to imagine our, our future very differently. They've said that as time goes on, they've already been renewed for a second season. So if you get involved, if you get invested, if you fall in love with these characters, it's okay. Apple's got your back. There's going to be another <laughs> season of this stuff. And the showrunners are very excited to see how our timelines diverge more and more and more as each season goes on. So uh, I, think, I think it's a really powerful way to spend an hour. It's very thought-provoking. I cried a bunch of times <laughs> over the course of it because it's just 
the the characters are so well wrought and the challenges that they're dealing with feel so human and it's it's just a damn interesting story yeah. uh, and, and check I it think, out i think if at some point if in you're in episode one and you're like mm, i don't know about this make it to the end of episode two Yep. If the if the very end of episode two doesn't grab you, then okay, it probably isn't going to grab you. But I think that uh, you know it, it's worth making it to the end of that. Episode. We're going to give then, you spoilers for episode two, and if you don't want them, turn off the podcast right now. You don't have to listen. Do you, do you want do you want me to do the big reveal? Do the big reveal, please. All right, okay. So in episode two, so the Soviets go to the, and specifically Soviets, right? land on the moon, uh, Americans land on the moon, and then Soviets do it again, and everybody is sitting around their TV going, damn, they did it again? Why would they go again so quickly? What are they doing? And there's a camera on the cosmonaut, remember that Soviet, Soviets call their, their space travelers cosmonauts, and the, the cosmonaut lifts, lifts their visor on their helmet to reveal that she is a woman bum, bum, bum. and it just explodes it ex- social progress out of <laughs> just bam. right out just like a, like a dynamite like dynamite boom and you go I, I remember i think i texted you holy shit yep <laughs> it's a woman and, and now we're off to the races because everything races. is different from everything here. is different because now Nixon says, well, I guess we have to do the same. And the United States has to really push itself and the space program has to really push itself to accept something that that previously, the day before, an hour before, seemed so unfathomable. Unfathomable. That they have to put American women on the moon. And so episode three begins with, so now what? And how are we going to assemble this? And it is episode three so far is my favorite and i'm not it's really for me where it takes off as well so yeah yeah check out these shows we're gonna keep talking about them we got 10 episodes ahead of us we're gonna keep up with it we'll see you next week we're gonna talk about this some more and uh you know have a good time let us know what you're thinking uh hit us up on twitter and uh tell us what you think about uh these hot shows going on right now